Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Dr. Stanley Little, who is a professor at Columbia and Duke University and serves as innovator in residence at, at Duke. He's a speaker, writer, and subject matter expert on education and corporate social responsibility and had a career in the public, private, and not-for-profit sectors, including president of the IBM Foundation, deputy schools chancellor for New York City, and founder of Interface. He has served on several presidential commissions and currently serves as a trustee of the State University of New York. He's also a columnist for Barron's. Welcome, Stan. Uh, thank you very much. So your recent book, um, entitled The Challenge for Business and Society from Risk to Reward, um, you discuss um, the recent federal actions, you know, have altered social and environmental rules, rolling back uh, clean power, consumer protection, and healthy eating initiatives. And you ask, how can responsible businesses step up their efforts to create jobs, reduce poverty, improve education and health, and address climate change issues, both domestically and around the world, while still generating the economic growth to enrich shareholders and create jobs? So the challenge for business and society uh, shows how leaders in business and government can actively balance the growth of business with the needs of society, producing even greater financial returns, you say. Uh, so you have always been a, an advocate of uh, private-public uh, partnerships, uh, having uh, worked on both sides of this equation. Um, how, how, do, how did you become a, a fan of the, the private-public partnerships? Well, I mean, one of the things in my experience at IBM, I had an opportunity to to engage in a variety of public-private partnerships to address the challenge of public education or higher ed or workforce development issues and do them in collaboration and partnership with government. And by no means is it easy, but no one sector of the economy can solve these challenges and problems operating alone. The public sector needs 
the private sector cooperation. They can't just regulate, they need leadership. And the same is true about civil society, not-for-profit groups. Uh, they're desperately needed to bring about real significant change. So cross-sector collaboration and public-private partnerships are vitally important. And that's what I learned in my career in the high up in the public sector, in the not-for-profit sector, and in the private sector. But one of the reasons I wrote the book, The Challenge for Business and Society, was to look at the American history and say, have there been examples where the private sector actually has led uh, in these areas and really established real progressive leadership, not because they were regulated or legislated to do yeah. so? And, and, you know, it's striking to understand that the provision of free health care for all of your employees started at a company called Macy's in 1870. Mm. Uh, if you worked for the government in 1870, nobody got health care. But if you worked for Macy's, everybody who was an employee of the company did. And the concept of a pension plan in the United States started with American Express in 1875. Yeah. And if you worked for a government agency, you didn't get a pension. And by the early 1900s, there were over 500 companies that offered a week of paid vacation. And at that time, if you worked for any one of the state governments in the United States, you didn't even get one day of vacation. So I thought if we had that kind of leadership by some companies in some areas, and there are lots of other examples through our history, and that's not to say that there aren't examples of the, other, of the opposite of people behaving very poorly from the yeah. robber barons through Bernie Madoff. But I think there are examples where corporations have really exhibited leadership and going forward, we need to make that the, um, the rule, not an example. We need to make a higher bar. We need companies to understand it's good for business and good for society. And we need to raise the level of performance. Yeah. Yeah. But I understand, you know, in the in a changing regime that we are in today, uh, we see maybe a handful of companies, maybe less than a dozen companies uh, is, um, you know, really responsible for most of the excess profits in the economy. And, you know, uh, with the with the COVID uh, issue that we currently have, the the returns to scale seem to have increased, uh, which would imply that, you know, in the in the in the future, we may end up with a few dozen companies uh, responsible for most of the activity in the economy, and mm -hmm. in the presence of lax monopoly laws. Uh, we may be in a in a difficult situation. So even though we have good examples of corporations doing good things in the past, what is your view as to how corporations are behaving today? Well, I think what what we've got today is, I mean, pretty much a window on the past. Uh, whether we're talking about a hundred years ago or fifty years ago, uh, as you said, there are examples of companies that provide free tuition for their employees. Uh, to improve their leadership skills and their education skills. We've got a company like AT&T, for example, that instead of laying off all of the workers who work on hardware, 
they contributed about $250 million a year to reskilling and retraining uh, their workers so that they don't lay them off and they can then build their skills. So we've, we've got examples of companies that have, you know, strong diversity practices, supply chain practices, uh, environmental practices. But as you say, it's the exception, not the rule. Yeah. And the question of how do we get the from the examples of a few companies exhibiting real success to making it more common practice and making it something that companies not only agree to do, but try to raise the bar and improve their level of performance. And I think one of the things that we could think about is taking advantage. Virtually every poll says that consumers are more likely to do business with a company that has strong corporate social responsibility practices. Yeah. That's what the polls say. And when people are asked, would you prefer to do business with a company that is a good corporate citizen, everybody responds in a very, very positive way. But uh, there's very, it's very difficult to take that uh, uh, polling data and turn it into actual practices. And I, I give you one example. In, in New York City, uh, former Mayor Bloomberg uh, gave restaurants a letter grade for their cleanliness and, and environmental uh, practices. So you could walk by a restaurant, and if it was an A, you might want it to go in. If it was a C, you might go right past it and not go in. But we might think about a letter grade process that would provide a high grade for companies that had strong environmental practices, you know, progressive labor practices, uh, did all the things that we would hopefully wish all companies would do and give the kind of recognition to those who do it and lack of recognition to those who don't and then trust the public to try to exert their uh, their action with their wallet to be able to demonstrate that they don't want to do business with a company that has a C or a D in their corporate responsibility. Or if you're recruiting the best top talent, you're going to have a hard time recruiting people with the best technology skills or, or data skills if your rating is a D or a C minus. So I think, you know, we've got to do more to raise the bar for the level of performance. And it's interesting when you look at the financial practices, uh, there's a lot of data that demonstrates that companies that have strong corporate responsibility practices actually do better economically uh, yeah. from an investment standpoint. So I think we, what we need to do is to think seriously about how do we make this something that isn't just the exceptional example of some companies and make it the way companies will normally practice. If you look right now at, you know, women and minority owned businesses in the United States, uh, they get about 1% of the supply chain spending of all large companies in the country. Mm. If, if we could get that up to 5% or 10%, you could generate such an enormous amount of investment capital and income into women and minority-owned businesses. You would expand their labor force, you would expand their economic activity, and 
that would be one clear example of something that people have talked and talked and talked, but we're not making any progress. Right, right. And and you are involved in education in, at all levels. So do you, do you think we have an issue with the business school education? Um, you know, when I went to business school, you know, it was a bit like you have a set of structured courses in finance, accounting, marketing, uh, with a couple of ethics and the leadership classes sprinkled in. And the basic message uh, is uh, really to lead a, lead a company, you maximize shareholder value and um, business school graduates come out, perhaps, I'm just asking the question, I don't know what, what's happening now, uh, with a false impression that shareholder value can be counted in quarterly statements um, and maybe aided by you know, consulting companies and so on, investment banks. Do we have a problem in business school education in general? I think we have a big problem, and I think it's not only in business schools. I mean, you can take courses in business schools on corporate social responsibility. They tend to be optional. You can take a course on business ethics, uh, tends again to be optional. And, and ethics is not part of how finance courses or marketing courses or any other business course is, is taught. Uh, but you could apply the same kind of standard to legal education. Yeah. You can get your law degree without taking, you know, a real uh, solid framework about ethics and values uh, as they apply to the legal profession or the medical profession. And I really think that ethics needs to be part of how education is taught at all levels. I, I would start with elementary and secondary education. I would add all higher education and I would add all graduate degrees. And that doesn't mean that you change the curriculum. Uh, do people need to take a strong, basic uh, set of courses in math or science or English or history? Yes, absolutely. But how that class and course is taught yeah. could include examples about ethics. And we also know very much that people who engage in some form of community service activities uh, really have an opportunity to demonstrate their ethics, whether it's a, uh, an experience like AmeriCorps or the Peace Corps or individual you know, community service or volunteer activities. They help bring ethical standards into practice. And yet we've had a lot of talk about more focus on community service activities and making it part of the educational experience. And we really haven't made some any systemic progress. So what I would say is ethics isn't like an afterthought. It isn't an, an extra cor course yeah. that you might take. It's how we should educate people in all levels. Uh, we should give people examples to demonstrate through community service. And then when people get into the workplace and you know companies spend hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars on their employee training and technical assistance and capacity building for their employees, ethics needs to be embedded in that training as well. Not just, you know, do you know what the Foreign and Corrupt Practices Act is, but do you really understand that high level of ethical behavior is part of being an effective worker, manager, executive, CEO, and that's something that's 
inherent in how you make your make your living. It's connected to your bottom line. Right, right. Yeah, I used to think that, you know, ethics and even leadership cannot be taught. And we, we attempt to do that, I think, in graduate school. I think it's too late, right? The The idea of social norms and ethics, if it's part of education, uh, what you're saying, I think, is it has to start really early. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And I think when we think about things like, you know, right now we're uh, having a, a, a sea-changing moment in how people think about racial and ethnic diversity and gender equity and these kinds of things. If they were part and parcel of how you educated people and reinforced it in all levels of education, we might not have the same kind of problems that we're having. Yeah, yeah. You have a, an op-ed recently, um, you say that education must be part of our coronavirus response. Do you want to um, say a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that what we have as a result of COVID-19 is we have an, a, a growing and deepening economic crisis. And uh, if we look at the uh, people who have been negatively affected economically by the pandemic, it's overwhelmingly people of color. It's overwhelmingly people with lower education levels, the kinds of jobs that have been threatened, uh, suspended, and now disappearing are the jobs that have you know, lower education levels. And even in the spite of the pandemic, the areas where uh, the hiring is going to be increasing are going to be places where people have uh, higher levels of education. Yeah. Uh, that was the case. We saw, talked about a skills crisis even before the pandemic, but I think this, the pandemic and COVID-19 has intensified that skills crisis. And I think it's going to put an even greater value and importance on providing higher levels of education. And that's where I think as we think about the industries that have been negatively affected and require some level of financial support from the federal government. And is it fine to support small business? Absolutely. Is it fine to support the airline industry? Absolutely. But the education industry could be at risk as yeah. a consequence of the pandemic. And we need to invest and make sure that our education system is strong. And we also need to make sure that people who have been disadvantaged as a consequence of the pandemic, do have the opportunity to expand their education skills uh, in this time of crisis. So this is a time to provide incentives for people to uh, get those education and skill enhancements, whether it's provided with a certificate or a degree or an or a advanced degree, uh, whether it's something that's done while you're not in the workforce or while you're in the workforce, Really, education is critical uh, to economic uh, development and economic enhancement. And I think the pandemic and what is not going to be a, a, a V-curve, it's going to be an economic problem that's going to be with us for some time. We need to provide the ability uh, for people to improve their education and skills so yeah. that they can, they can you know, manage a recovery for themselves. Right. But then the question would be, 
you know, what type of education, right? So we, we have been debating about skills upgrade needed for everybody um, with artificial intelligence uh, really taking off, uh, possibly able to do a lot of the routine things that uh, humans used to do. Uh, and if you are on this track, it is conceivable that at some point we will reach a reach a position that much of the much of what we call jobs today uh, could be done by machines. And so, if that is in fact true, uh, then there is a there is a real um, important question: what type of skills, what education, um, you know, should we be designing for the for for the coming generation? Well, I think it's true that artificial intelligence is going to uh, change certain jobs, no question about it. It's going to cause disruption and elimination of some jobs. It's also going to, going to lead to the development of new skills and new jobs and new opportunities. Yeah. And when people look at the kinds of skills that people need, when the survey of, of the conference board uh, uh, companies, uh, Fortune 500 companies, uh, the results demonstrated that employers felt that their new hires lacked writing skills. Mm. They lacked problem-solving skills. They lacked presentation skills. Uh, so a lot of what people are going to need to learn to do and to make it part of their education are the kinds of adaptability skills that will allow people to adapt, change, learn, grow, if the job that they're doing changes. Uh, so, you know, I used that example earlier about AT&T of having, you know, a large number of their employees who worked on hardware uh, and they were expanding uh, the number of jobs that they needed where people had software uh, skills. And they could have laid all those people off and yeah. hired others with those skills, or they could have invested in adaptability and training and skill enhancement for those people so that they could grow their skills. And they found that having employees who were loyal and, and high performers and just needed additional skill level was significant and important. And that investment turned out to be good for the employee, but also good for the company bottom line. So if we think about artificial intelligence and changes in a variety of different ways, if we can have a more adaptable workforce, mm -hmm. I think we're going to be investing in our future. And I think uh, AI will change a lot of the things that are done. On the other hand, uh, there are huge opportunities for growth in, in fields like healthcare and technology, uh, finance, uh, you know, in, in a whole host of uh, job categories. And if we have people who have a broader range of skills, if we pay attention to problem solving and adaptability and writing skills and, and presentation and collaboration, if we can incorporate them in as we change the skill level that people have, I think we're going to have a workforce that will be able to adapt and grow as the workplace changes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was reading, you know, the country of Norway, which, uh, you know, has always been on top of the education metrics in the world. Uh, they have or is going through a dramatic 
uh, redesign of the education system. And I found, you know, some of the design principles to be really interesting. So they say uh, students will be familiarized with key social challenges through the introduction of three interdisciplinary topics, health and life skills, democracy and citizenship, and sustainable development. And they say several subjects uh, become more practical and exploratory, critical thinking and critical approach to sources becomes a central part of several subjects, greater emphasis on on, on play-based learning for the youngest children, digital, digital skills, programming and technology will be strengthened. And they say reduction in the number of subject competencies allowing for more in-depth learning. So, so this is a, a structural change, the way that they look at education and given their track record, um, again, they seem to be leading um, in, in these ideas. You know, we, we are still um, sort of stuck in a very structured and prescriptive education format. Um, you know, I sometimes think the physics books I used in, in my university days, uh, my daughter 30 years later used the same books, you know, different edition, but the same book. Um, and 30 years is a long time uh, for us not to change the content or the format of education. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I, my, my thought is that education, um, you know, as, a, uh, as an industry uh, is very, very slow to change. Yeah. And then when you think about, you know, the 180 day school year uh, that was started you know, back in the agrarian days in the United States and really hasn't changed. We know that you need to adapt and change and grow industries, but think about an industry like education where, you know, uh, we, we've lived with something so long without thinking about adapting and growing and changing. Uh, the, the, the way that we have education standards, the way that we test against the standards, so much of education uh, has been resistant to any kind of meaningful change. And I think that when you're thinking about, you know, preparing people from uh, school to college to career, I think we need to make that experience less siloed and segmented. Uh, we need to connect, uh, you know, elementary and secondary to college. It's not just enough to get an increase in high school graduation rates, which we've had in the United States. We need to significantly improve college completion, which we haven't done. Uh, and we need to make the transition from higher ed to the workplace more seamless uh, for young people. All of these things will require change. Yeah. Um, and you know, uh, incorporating into how we teach uh, the kinds of things that we call soft skills, but I would really call them essential skills, you know, problem solving, writing, presentation, and really growing somebody who can adapt and change as they go from elementary and secondary to higher ed and then go from higher ed to career and, and really make our education system less siloed and segmented and more comprehensive Mm -hmm. uh, I think is something that's going to build uh, a workforce that is going to be able to adapt and grow and change and develop and be more secure uh, than what we've got. 
And I think as we look at the impact of technology, that's just one element. I think we're, we really have to figure out, you know, if you've got an industry that is so critical to your economic, you know, fortunes as, as the right kind of education and skills, we can't possibly think that it doesn't need to change from 1920 to 2020. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. You know, more tactically, uh, do you think uh, the, the Zoom schooling that's going on now, uh, do you think that's going to have a lasting impact how schooling is done in the future? I, I, think, it's, I think it's going to have a huge impact. I mean, I think if we think about uh, the, uh, what happened in education across the United States is, is when the pandemic hit and schools started to close uh, in the early to mid part of March um, without a whole lot of preparation. Uh, in elementary and secondary education, uh, people were supposedly learning remotely, but we know that that really hasn't, hasn't been equitable. Yeah. We really know that in some communities uh, you know, young people didn't have a device of any kind uh, to be able to do remote learning. We also learned that millions of people didn't have Wi-Fi, so they didn't have any connectivity to mm-hmm. access information and materials. And then we also know that some of the material that was available for online learning, not just Zoom, but, but online learning systems, were not really all that high quality. So we know that large numbers of young people have had their education significantly disrupted. We know that the research tells us that, that uh, lots of people lose education progress just over the summer months, but if you translate in that into a six-month or a seven-month period uh, without any preparation, you're going to see large numbers of young people who are going to be lagging behind, uh, yeah. and then we're going to have to think about how do we get them back up to scale and how we get them moving into the future. And in higher education, we know that while Zoom has permitted some type of uh, courses to continue uh, some, somewhat like what they used to look like, we know that large numbers of young people are, are concerned. There was a recent poll that said, you know, almost two thirds of young people, you know, in higher education nationally are concerned about their ability to stay on time to graduate. We know mm. that their, their um, uh, food insecurity has gone up. We know that their mental health problems have increased. We know that substance abuse problems have increased. So it's not just education, it's all these other things that impact on education. So I think the, the radical you know, end to in-person learning that happened at all levels of education is something that we're gonna have to pay a lot of attention to, and it's, it's gonna require investment uh, to be able to make sure that that doesn't produce uh, problems that are with us for decades. Yeah, and the redesign, I guess, uh, has to take into account emerging technologies too, right? So perhaps even technologies in the area of virtual reality and you know things like that. Um, then, so, you know, that may open up a huge opportunity returning to our original theme of public-private partnerships. Uh, you know, if you think about how, how the government and private companies can come together to apply technology more broadly, more systematically in education, 
it has huge returns, not only for society, but for the companies themselves, because they do have to train a new type of workforce for the future, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I was proud of being able to do while I was at IBM is I created a model for uh, high school education, a, a nine through 14 school called PTEC. Yeah. Uh, it started in New York, uh, in Brooklyn, and now there are about 220 schools across the United States and around the world. And the concept is that uh, uh, students should be able to, over a six-year period or less, depending upon how they can progress, they ought to be able to earn a high school degree and a community college degree. Uh, and their education should include high school classes, college classes, paid internships, mentoring uh, with a, a professional, uh, the opportunity to really uh, understand all of those important workplace skills, and then be able to either go into the workforce prepared or to go on and get their uh, future degree at a higher level, a bachelor's degree or a graduate degree. If you look at the results of that first school that started in Brooklyn, uh, that President Obama visited in 2013, their uh, college completion rates are 400% higher than the national average. Uh, and uh, it's serving a population that is 100% uh, students of color, 100% low income students. And of the students who have completed their, their uh, college degree uh, and, and gone to work for IBM, dozens of them uh, are doing well in the workforce and they're a population that under normal circumstances, you know, you wouldn't have thought uh, could, could move into high wage jobs in the technology sector because uh, almost two thirds of them at grade eight level were more than two years behind in reading and math. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the, the notion that students can succeed really gets dispelled by saying that that's not true. Students can succeed, but they need a change in the approach to education. And the public-private partnership here was critical because, you know, without the employer involvement, uh, this wouldn't have happened. Yeah, yeah. So I want to conclude with your thoughts on, um, you know, from a policy perspective, if, if you could make one change... Um, in the education arena, what would be the highest priority change from your perspective? Uh, I think the highest priority uh, would be, I would think about rethinking how we train and prepare the quality of our teachers. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think if you sort of like look at the results, uh, if a student has access to a high quality teacher, they do better uh, than those who don't have access to the high quality instruction. And I think when we think about when we get teachers into the workforce, we invest very little in their continued skill development and in their support. So, you know, teachers need to have access to the right kind of technology skills. Yeah. They need to have mentors. They need to have the ability to change and grow their skills. When you think about somebody, you know, coming out of the academy and then being in the workforce, you know, 15 or 20 years, uh, they're going to need 
continued skill development, and we do precious little of that. Mm. So I would put that very, very high on my list. And I'm not sure that that would be as divisive as things like uh, charters and choice and, and vouchers that have been so divisive. I think everybody could agree that, you know, we need higher quality teaching. And, yeah. and that's, that's a place where I would put a significant amount of investment. So, so you would uh, you would suggest both changes in credentialing as well as the education of teachers, and there's a hierarchy there, right? So, is there sort of a train the trainer type concept that needs to kind of spread through the entire system? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, one other example you talked about earlier about uh, AI. Yeah. Uh, at IBM, we created a you know a, a, using artificial intelligence a uh, teacher tool, uh, Watson Teacher Advisor, that would allow a teacher to be able to go online using artificial intelligence and customize a lesson plan to meet the needs of their class. You know, when you think about a lesson plan, it's developed, and the assumption is every student in the class is actually at the same level, mm -hmm. uh, and that this is what the lesson plan is, and this is how you would teach it. But for a teacher, they might have a lesson that they're teaching and a third of the students are way behind, a third of on grade level, a third are above grade level, and you need to adapt and change the lesson and teach it in different ways. In, and you might wanna get support uh, as you uh, change your teaching strategies, you might wanna have people who could help and guide you through that process. And the Watson Teacher Advisor uh, gave teachers the ability to do that for math instruction, uh, grades K through eight. So a teacher could go online and they could get the best lesson plans for a fourth grade uh, math class. They could adapt the lesson and they could say, they could seek help for uh, different teaching strategies and other kinds of things. Uh, that's an example of artificial intelligence actually improving the quality of teaching, not replacing uh, teachers. Yeah. But that's just one small, narrow example. I think that the job of being a teacher is one that I think we should, we should appreciate the difficulty of it, the, lack of, the importance of preparation, the importance of ongoing support. And I think we can think about ways that teachers could get that ongoing uh, skill support and training and, uh, in an ongoing way that would improve the quality of instruction and it would directly lead to improved student achievement. Right, right. Yeah, so this has been great, Stan. I really appreciate the time you spend with me and uh, good luck with, uh, with everything that you do. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it as well.